navigating through this book. We've titled our series Messy Grace, and we've seen how messy this church uh, was in Corinth, but, uh, but at the same time, it's like looking in a mirror and realizing, gosh, look how messy we are, uh, that things really haven't changed that much uh, since Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. But then the beautiful thing is that the grace of God hasn't changed, that it continues to pour over uh, sinful human beings like us, all right? And so it's been a, an amazing series. And so this morning, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verse 2 to 16, all right, from verse 2 to 16. And so this morning is going to be slightly different. Um, some of you may uh, or may not notice, but uh, it's going to be more teaching than preaching. Uh, and here's why. Uh, this passage is going to require us to go a little bit deeper in our hermeneutical navigation of what we're doing, right? So this word hermeneutics, right, hermeneutical, uh, might be new to some of you. Hermeneutics simply means the study or the interpretation of God's Word and, and then really looking at it uh, at all the different areas, right? So here's the thing. God's Word is universal. It's timeless. Uh, it can be taught in any generation, in any context. But we have to take into consideration that it was written by different individuals, Right? And these different individuals existed or lived in different times and cultures and contexts. And so we have to take all of that into consideration. And so as we look through this passage, we're definitely going to have to do that. And so it's going to feel more Bible study than actual preach. Okay? And so I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page as we navigate through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 16. And so like I do... Uh, I'm going to read it, uh, and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me, uh, that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. So hear these words of our Father. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman." And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is, dis uh, it is just a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. It's going to be interesting. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it is rich um, and that it continues to transform the individual lives of people. And so, Lord, I ask that you uh, would do the work that only you can do this morning. Uh, would you meet us where we are? Uh, would you engage us? Uh, 
we want to see you for who you are. We want to see through your scripture that we are in desperate need of a Savior. Father, I pray against any distractions here this morning. Would you give wisdom? Would you give counsel? This is a tricky passage, uh, one that has been seen as to be controversial. Um, And so give wisdom, Lord. Um, And so it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May they be a sweet fragrance to you. God, you are our king, you are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I am an Apple fan. Uh, I love all the Apple products. Um, I'm sure many of you would know this. I love the iPhone. Uh, the MacBook, um, the Apple TV, all of it. I think it's incredible. And, and to be honest, I don't understand how uh, anyone can use anything else um, that is not an Apple product, but you guys can judge me later. Before Steve Jobs died, I believe it's undeniable that he was, of our time, one of the greatest creators, um, just one of the greatest innovators. He was phenomenal in the way that he thought, in his intentions to make a significant impact in the world through technology. This is true of everything that he touched. Everything that he touched, right down to even the, the icons that exist on the iPhone or, or the, the, the iPad. I'm sure you guys have seen them if we can throw a picture of these. He was incredibly intentional about this. Incredibly intentional. That it's, it's not a full circle, but at the same time, it's not really a square. It's like an in-between. It was intentional when he did this. In fact, the story goes like this. While looking at what his lead technologist had created, he had made these circles. Looking at them, it's, the story tells us that something bothered Steve Jobs. He said to him, well, circles and ovals are good, but how about drawing rectangles with rounded corners? Can we do that? He asked. No, there's no way to do that. In fact, it would be really hard to do that, said the lead guy who was developing all of this. I don't think we really need it, actually. I think Bill was his name, was a little bit frustrated that Steve wasn't raving over the fast ovals that he had created. I think he was irritated that Steve actually wanted more. He was like, no, 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 listen, we can't settle with this. Surely we can do something else. Steve suddenly got more intense. Rectangles with rounded corners are everywhere. Just look around this room. And sure enough, there was lots of them, like the whiteboard and some of the desks and tables. Then he pointed out the window and said, look outside. There's even more practically everywhere you look. He even persuaded Bill to take a quick walk around the block with him, pointing out every rectangle with rounded corners that he could find. He was intentional. And so we have it, arguably the first case for Steve Jobs' obsession with rounded corners. And we are still seeing the fruit of that today. I read uh, somewhere else that, that psychologists actually say that when we look at this, it's actually quite calming. It's actually quite calming. See, for those who like uh, circles, it's like, no, no, I just like things to be a little more fluid and free. They can look at this and be like, okay, it's halfway, so I, I can be okay with this. And then for others who are like, no, no, I love the rectangle, I just love structure. They can look at this and be like, okay, I can, I can deal with this. It's, it's calming. This is why I love Apple products. 
Steve was incredibly intentional in his creation. Now, I know some of us, we might look at this. I know sometimes I'll have a Apple product in my hand and go, you know what, but man, it'd be really cool if it did this. Or, hey, why, did, why didn't he do this? Or maybe this is frustrating. I wish, I wish that uh, Apple would allow more apps to be kind of included into their system, that people would have the freedom to, to develop whatever they want and just kind of load them on the system. I know some people get frustrated, especially those who are more tech savvy, will go, you know what I hate about Apple is that he doesn't give us the freedom to do so. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. He who creates dictates. He who creates dictates. Whoever creates something, they will dictate how it should function and what the purpose of it is. And so, yes, we may have feelings. We may go, you know what, I actually feel that no, X should do this or maybe Y should do this. And those are great. You should make those feelings known. But the reality is he who creates dictates. I say this because we have to understand this as we navigate through our text this morning because it's going to be incredibly tricky. A lot of people have wrestled with this passage. A lot of people have said, you know what, this is why the church is not progressive. This is why the church is backwards. And so we're going to navigate through some stuff, and, and it's going to be hard, but we're going to have to land on that. Listen, he who creates dictates. But I know the problem might be this word dictate, because in our context, it's used in the negative. But hopefully as we go through this passage, I'll show you, I'll reveal to you that, no, 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 God is good, and what he gives us is actually good for us. What he dictates is actually meant for human flourishing. He who creates dictates. But let's jump in. Verse 2, Paul starts by saying, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now this isn't the traditions that we spoke about last week. These aren't man-made traditions. What Paul is talking about here is the scriptures. He's saying, listen, I commend you church in Corinth, I commend you because you guys are keeping to the scriptures, that you're seeking to understand who God is in and through the scriptures. This is great. This is good. But clearly, they're not following everything, so he has to write a couple things to correct. Notice in verse 3, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there is much confusion and disagreement that occurs from this passage. Some might even say controversy. This is where they say the church is backwards, that we need to be more progressive. And they say that because Paul didn't explicitly complete these metaphors. This is why it's confusing, is that he doesn't explicitly complete these metaphors. He described all three forms of headship. Christ is the head, husbands are heads, and then God is the head yet did not state the roles of the matching equivalents, men, wives, and Christ. Begging the question, if one member of each pair is the head, what roles do the others play? That's the question that we should have. That's the question that we should ask. Now, most interpreters have sought to answer this question in the same way for all three relationships, resulting in two common interpretations of this verse. First, some have argued that the head in this passage means the source, right? The source. Think of a a head of a river as it flows into the different streams. That that head is the source. In this view, Christ is the source of all males in the sense that Christ created 
Adam from the dust. We see this in Genesis 2, verse 7. And we know that Christ created him because we see it in Colossians chapter 1, where all things have been created by him and for him. And so Christ is the source of all males. In a similar manner, males are the source of all females, in the sense that Eve was taken out of Adam. That Eve was taken out of Adam, Genesis 2, verse 22. And that God the Father is the head of Christ because Christ came from the Father. This is John chapter 16, verse 27 to 28. I'm just reading you scripture. So some would say that, that the head should be understood as the source. The second common interpretation, where others have argued, is that the head implies a chain of authority. The head implies a chain of authority that extends from God to the Father, to Christ, to husbands, and then to their wives. This interpretation gets its support, gets its support primarily from the Hebrew term head that we find throughout the Old Testament. This is where they get it from, the Old Testament. Confused? Frustrated? Yeah, me too. That's, that's what I felt when I first looked at this passage. I was like, what on earth is going on here? What, Paul, what are you trying to tell us? What are you trying to say? So here is where I land on the matter. And thankfully, not just me. All right, that there are a few others who are significantly more educated than I am who land where I'm about to kind of share what this means. See, I believe that Paul purposefully did not complete the metaphors because the parallels among Christ, husbands, and God are not all primarily the same. Recognizing that these comparisons could easily be stretched too far by treating the parallels too strictly, we can create an unhealthy, unbiblical hierarchy. And this is what's happened. And when we hold on too tightly and not really allowing the Holy Spirit to work and to explain what we can create is this unhealthy, unbiblical hierarchy. And so to make sure that we don't do that, Paul writes in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 to 12, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And then he says this, and all things are from God. All things are from God. And he says, listen, we need one another. We covered this when we did the series Beautiful by Design. That when God created everything, there was this complementary pairs that existed that we see. And even with man and woman, complementary pairs that we are equal in value, equal in identity, equal in essence, but distinct in function. Distinct in function. And so to make sure that the church in Corinth doesn't go down the wrong road, he writes that. Paul writes and he says, listen, we need one another that we are independent, interdependent. Christ, husbands, and God are all sources and all authorities in different ways. It depends on how you look at it and why you're looking at it. The term head has a variety of meanings, including source and authority, just as I've explained. In some respects, the meaning of source should be emphasized, and in other respects, authority appears to be more the correct interpretation. This difference should be self-evident. Here's why. Husbands are never the heads of their wives in precisely the same way that Christ is the head of men. That's not how it works. 
another way is that the Father did not create the Son. The Father, did, they, they've always existed. The Trinity have always existed. The Father did not create the Son because the Son has always been there. So again, we need to make sure that we're understanding this in its correct context. There is a difference in how Christ is the head of men, different to how God is the head of Christ. The Father did not create the Son, nor is Christ simply the subordinate of the Father. The differences among the various members of these parallels makes precise comparisons impossible. This is why hermeneutics is important. That if we were just to read this and go, okay, cool, it's a simple application, we'd land in the problems that we're in now, that we are facing now. So then how then do we navigate through this text? To know more precisely what headship means in these various relationships, we must look beyond the mere term head and understand the unique features of each relationship. And we're going to do that in a moment. It is also important to note that Paul's main concern here in these few verses was not to specify what he meant by headship. He, comment, he commended the Corinthians for understanding this doctrine. A, he's like, listen, I, I'm not going to unpack this now, maybe because he had already unpacked what headship meant when he planted the church. This is why he writes in verse 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. That maybe he spent some time with them unpacking what does headship mean. So he doesn't find it necessary to unpack it now. Meaning that for us at some point, we've got to unpack this. We've got to unpack well, what does headship truly mean. How are we to understand it in the context of it being the source and it being the authority. But for right now, Paul wants to say something else. And so he, he just kind of continues because he says, listen, I know you guys remember this. I know you remember this. So he just continues. So because of this, it seems apparent that Paul felt little need to explain himself. His primary concern was more practical, was dealing with the practical. In this passage, the headship of Christ, husbands and God have one thing in common to which he drew attention. Each head should be on it. Each head should be on it. See, we see this word over and over and over again. And so, hey, maybe that's the focus. Maybe this is what Paul is trying to make clear to us, that each head should be on it. This practical concern comes front and center and should be our focus this morning because of its repetition. By their actions in public worship, men are expected to honor Christ. We see this in verse 4. And wives are expected to honor their husbands. We see this in verse 5. Just as Christ brings honor and glory to his heavenly Father. This is the purpose of what he is writing here. He's addressing their public gatherings. When they would come together, he's saying, listen, there's some issues here that I have to address. It's because of headship. And so here's why. This is what you ought to do. Now having a, a slightly better understanding of headship, Paul addresses the men in verse 4. He says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Remember, his head being Christ. Any man who does this with his head covered dishonors Christ. Now let's do some hermeneutical work here. Now in this church was probably Greeks, some Romans, and some Jews. It was a transcultural church. 
The city of Corinth was incredibly diverse. And so Paul shows up, he plants this church, he shares the gospel, people come to faith from the Greeks, from the Romans, and from the Jews. Now, history tells us that the, the Greeks didn't really have head coverings. It wasn't a thing that they were into. It was more a Roman practice. And see, the Romans would, would wear head coverings when they would worship their false gods. When they were making sacrifices to their false gods, they would wear head coverings. Now, because of the Roman Empire and its colonization, they were having an influence in all the places they were going. And so we have to assume that that's what was happening in Corinth. That as the Romans showed up, that they were having an impact and an influence in that city. And so now all of a sudden, the Gentiles, these, these Greek people were beginning to go, okay, maybe we should put head coverings on and also sacrifice to false gods. It seems to be working for the Romans, so maybe we should do it. And so Paul is saying, okay, listen, guys, as you come to faith and you show up at the public gathering and you come up to the front and you begin to pray or prophesy and you've got a head covering on, there might be some people in the gathering who don't know Jesus yet as Lord and Savior, or, or maybe are on the fence and are wrestling or going, oh, I don't know, is it false uh, uh, gods or is it, is it Jesus, the one and only God? Like, what do I do? They're on the fence. Or there might be some people who have just come to faith, some young believers. And so they're sitting there looking at you with a head covering on and wondering, I wonder, I wonder if that person still worships to false gods. You know, I wonder if they still go sacrifice there at the temple of, of sexuality and, and sex outside of the context of God. Like, I, I wonder if that's still happening. While you're up there praying and, and delivering God's word, they're sitting there thinking about it. Like, does that mean that we could do that as well? Because the temple is open Monday to Saturday, and this place opens up on Sunday. And so I wonder, like, maybe I can go there Monday to Saturday and then show up to here. And then you go, amen, and that person didn't hear a word you said. Because they are distracted. They are distracted. And so Paul says, listen, let's just eliminate it. Let's just eliminate it. Don't wear coverings on your head. Just don't do it. It becomes a distraction to the gospel. And when it becomes a distraction to the gospel, you dishonor Christ. You dishonor your head. So just don't do it. See, Jewish folk, they, they would wear head coverings. We know this to be true because God commanded Aaron, the high priest, to wear a turban when he was ministering. So we know that, that the Jewish men would wear head coverings. We see this in Exodus 29 verse 6, a practice that would have continued into the New Testament. But you see, the problem is among the, the Jewish folk in the synagogues, it now had become a thing of prestige. How intelligent you are, how much you know of God's word. It'd be like rocking the latest turban, coming up to the front in all its glory. Maybe you've got some diamonds on it, I don't know. And so now you've got people sitting there going, wow, like a, he must think a lot about himself. Or maybe someone's sitting there going, man, I want to be like him. Like, look at it, it's so beautiful, all the different colors. How, yeah, I want to. You become a distraction to the gospel because people are no longer listening. You dishonor your head. You dishonor Christ. And so Paul says, listen, this is becoming an issue. Okay, men, just don't do it. Don't wear anything on your head. Paul then turns to the women. 
Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, before we jump into this, um, I want you guys to see something that sometimes we quickly miss. And that is, Paul is affirming the public praying and prophesying done by women in the public gathering. He's affirming that. Don't miss it. He's affirming it. And this was incredibly scandalous in that day. Scandalous. Because in the, in the synagogues, women would say nothing. You would sit where you sit and you would know your place. You would say nothing. But yet in the Christian church, women had a place to come up and pray publicly and, and prophesy publicly. And so don't miss it. This was incredible. Why? Because, because Paul understood that we are created, all of us in God's image, that we are equal in value and equal in worth and equal in identity, yet distinct in function. But we are equal. Paul understood this. And so he was saying, listen, church, for those who have crossed the line of faith, when we gather, we must display this. And so he affirms public praying and prophesying of women. Don't miss it, guys. But let's go back to the text. See, in Paul's day throughout the Mediterranean, it was customary in some circles for women of good reputation to wear a veil or a head covering in public, and that this practiced honored husbands. That, that was the custom. That was the custom. That was the practice. That's what they did. That was what made sense in their context and culture. It was a way of honoring their husbands. And so Paul was just simply saying, continue this. Continue this. Even though now you are a Christian, continue this. Because it's honoring to your husband. It doesn't take away from the Scriptures. It doesn't take away from God. So honor it. But, but here's the other reason that, that Paul says to the women and to the wives, listen, cover your head is that in the city of Corinth, right, I, I think I've said this a number of times, it was a highly sexual city, highly sexual city, and that next to the, the supermarket was probably a brothel. And so you would get your milk and your bread and then go to the brothel and then go home. That, that was just the custom. And so what the, the, the ladies did, what the prostitutes did, is that they, to, to communicate that I am available is that they would let their hair loose. They would not cover their heads. Remember, because it was a practice done by wives to honor their husbands, it was them communicating that, hey, I, I don't have a husband. In fact, I'm available. If you have the right amount of money, I'm available. That's what they were communicating. And so Paul says, listen, when you gather together, wives, just c cover your head. Because you don't want people sitting there going, I, I wonder if she's communicating if she's available. Hey, what kind of church is this? Right? Like you're turning to the person who invited you, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, what? Man, I, like, is, is this what you guys do here? Because maybe I could be in. I don't know. Like, is this? While the woman is praying or declaring God's word, and, and, but you completely miss it. You have now become a distraction to the gospel. 
And so Paul says that, hey, wives, when you do that, wives, when you do that, you are dishonoring your husband. You are communicating to others that, hey, I'm either one, I'm single, right? I may not be a prostitute, but, but I'm single. It would be the equivalent of uh, us today um, rocking up at a restaurant and not having your ring on if you're married. I know some of y'all are like, but I don't like to wear a ring. Like, I have, surely I'm free in Christ. Yes, but in our context, in our culture, in our time, wearing a ring communicates that you're married. And so when you don't have one, and maybe someone looks at you and they're like, hmm, okay, maybe I should go introduce myself. You will have the ability to go, hi, how are you doing? It's good to see you. Yes, I'm just here with my friends. <laughs> We're just hanging out. Yes, it's, yeah, there's, no, I know there's two of us, but five of us will be here later. <laughs> because you're communicating, hey, I'm married, I'm honoring my spouse. See, in their context, they weren't, they weren't wearing these. And so if wives would cover their heads to say, listen, I'll, our city is messed up and um, it is sexually perverse and it's, so I'm going to wear a head covering to communicate that I am not one of those ladies or I am not single, that I am married and I am committed to my husband. And so Paul says in the public gatherings, ladies, please do the same. Yes, you have all the freedom in Christ not to wear a head covering, but, but you are in a particular time and context and culture. And so the wearing of a head covering does not go against the scriptures and so just do it. Because it honors your husbands. Because when you don't, it becomes a distraction to the gospel. It becomes a distraction to the gospel. He then says something about shaving your head. Well, what does that mean? Again, in the Mediterranean culture, uh, if a woman or a wife was caught in adultery, to shame her, she would have her head shaven. So that everyone could see, oh, there, there she goes. There she goes, the one who committed adultery. Now, I know some of you might be sitting here like, well, what do they do to the men? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And yes, man, it was bad because much like today, we continue to oppress women. We live in a male-dominated culture and context, and, and a lot of that is not right. And so I'm, ag I'm agreeing with you. But I'm writing or I'm saying what has been written or what Paul was communicating is that, listen, he's saying, women, don't, don't shave your heads because it communicates something in that context. So we have to ask the question in our context, what is that thing? What is that thing that communicates to the world that goes against what Christ is about? They had their heads shaven because of the adultery that they had committed to put shame and guilt on them. So Paul says, don't, don't do it. Don't do it because you, for those who have crossed the line of faith, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. This is incredibly beautiful, redemptive language that you have been forgiven, that you don't have to have your head shaven. You don't. And if it is, then, then cover it because you've been forgiven. You've been covered by the blood of Christ. Isn't it crazy how we, we live in a world that wants to do that, that wants to shame people? that wants to put guilt on people. And so we come up with all these different ways. Oh, you must sit over there. You can't do this. And it's like, but hold on, I've been forgiven by Christ. I've been brought back in. 
into fellowship with him and then into fellowship with one another. This is what Paul is advocating for. He's saying, church, we need to display this. We need to display this. History also says, see this hermeneutical work, history also says that if you were a slave, you would have your head shaved as well. It was one way of communicating that that person, that lady, is a slave. And so Paul says, listen, for those who have crossed the line of faith, for those who are in the body of Christ, you are family now. You are family now. And so maybe while you wait until your hair grows out, just wear a head covering. Just wear a head covering. You're no longer a slave, but a child of God and a brother and a sister. You're now in the family. And so this is why he says this. Verse 7 And this is where it gets tricky. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is talking about creative order. It's talking about creative order. It's not saying that man is better than woman. That's not what Paul is saying. He's merely stating creative order. See, the heart of Paul's restriction is essentially this. Do not unintentionally scandalize the order of creation. That there is an order. It does exist. He who creates dictates. There is an order here. And because God is good, it's meant for human flourishing. It's meant for human flourishing. So Paul says that don't unintentionally scandalize the order of creation. I'll say it again. Remember, Creative order does not mean better. It simply refers more, more to purpose and function. God created human beings in His image, both male and female. And the members of each gender have the privilege to uniquely display God's image in their distinct purpose and function. Even though they are completely equal, there is an order to creation. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Paul is not stating anything new here. He's not coming up with a new teaching here. He's simply communicating the creative order that exists in creation. Genesis tells us that Eve was created in light of Adam's lack of a suitable mate. That's what the book of Genesis tells us, that she was a helper, as God put it. Now, now please don't belittle this word, because this is what we do as men. We belittle this word. We go, oh, yeah, you're just a helper. God created you as just, just, just a helper from me, but just a helper. Failing to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is called a helper that throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as a helper, helping Israel, the, his people. So don't belittle this word. It carries incredible weight. Even if we look at the book of Judges, I love the book of Judges. As you navigate through the book of Judges, you see God's people, they acknowledge that God 
is sovereign and that he's seated on his throne. Things go well, human flourishing. And then they forget and they begin to think that they are God. Then things end really, really badly for them. Really, really badly. To the point where they, now all, everyone is crying out to God, help us, help us. And so God steps in. He helps them by sending them a judge. And then they go and they conquer and it's amazing. And it talks about all these battles against their enemies. And then they praise him again. Because they acknowledge God as the one who is seated on the throne. But then it's not too long where they take their eyes off God and they think they're God. And then things end badly for them. This is the rhythm of not only judges, but even us today. And so the same men who, who had conquered their enemies in battle, warriors, we now find them shriveling in the corner, quivering lip, full of tears and snot, crying out to God, help me, help me. And I can, sometimes I think of it this way, that God looks at them and he's like, but I already have. There she is. Not in all cases, but in most, gentlemen, there she is. If we would take our foot off her and stop oppressing her, then maybe we would see that God has created woman in all her beauty and in all her glory to come alongside us. Not under us, but alongside us for human flourishing. Don't belittle that word. If I had time, I would go into why I think it's incredibly intentional that Solomon, Solomon refers to wisdom in Proverbs as she. Ooh, some of y'all didn't know that. He refers to wisdom as she. Now, again, what have we learned about hermeneutics? Don't just take this and run with it and be like, I told you, I told you wisdom. I told you, talking to your husband, you know, like you, don't, you never listen. God sees me as wisdom. Like, no, no. There's a lot more work that needs to be done here. But I believe it is incredibly intentional that God refers to wisdom as she. We're not called to be little women. They have an incredible important role here to come alongside for human flourishing. But, but let's go back to the text. Where was I? God made Eve out of Adam, right? God made Eve out of Adam. And when he finally laid eyes on her, this is Adam, he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2 verse 23. When God looks at man, he sees his image. When man looks at woman, he sees his image. Remember, which is the image of God. Which is the image of God. woman was made out of man. It's creative order. And maybe you might be sitting here and still wrestling with it. Great. One day when we're standing before God in all eternity, maybe after a thousand years of enjoying Him and who He is, we'll be able to sneak in that question and be like, so why did you do it that way? Like, why, why not women first? Why? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's part of His creative order. And because God is good, it's meant for our flourishing for human flourishing. When we live in light of this creative order, we experience shalom. We experience shalom, this interdependent human flourishing. It's a loving, reassuring, beautiful masterpiece of God. I mean, think about it. After he had created woman, that's where God says it's very good. 
Something was lacking until he created woman. It's meant for our human flourishing. And when Christians display this creation, this creative order, and when we do that in our worship time, our gathering together time, it communicates something incredibly powerful, not just to those who have gathered, but to those outside. It is something that is meant to be celebrated, not covered. But let's keep going, verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. See, Paul here is asking women to act responsibly. That's what he's saying, that you have a symbol of authority on your head, that this head covering, yes, it's, it's a symbol of authority and that, yes, I understand women, you have all the freedom in Christ to do whatever it is you want to do. I also think that he's also acknowledging that women have authority. Wives definitely have authority. Husbands would go amen on that. I know you'll whisper it, but you know it. They have authority. And so Paul's saying, I, I understand that and I acknowledge that they carry a lot of authority, but, but when they do this, when they restrain freedom for the benefit of the community, that is a symbol of authority. See, the gospel is, is upside down. It's like the upside down kingdom that when we restrain ourselves, it's actually a sign of authority where the world doesn't work that way. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying wives display the symbol of authority. Why? Because even the angels are looking. Not only those who have gathered and not only those who don't know Christ yet, but even the angels are watching. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 to 12, where Peter writes that, that talking about our salvation, it's something that the angels, they long to look into these things. They're just going, I don't understand. Because think about it, right? Think about it. They, they experience Jesus in all his glory and in all his power and in all his strength and might and wisdom. And then they watch him become a man. They watch him become a man. They, like they're going, what on earth is going on here? God, what are you up to? What are you up to? And not only that, he lives this perfect life here on earth. Why? So that he can die the perfect death for us. And so, so Jesus on the cross, I'm sure many of the angels were going, just say the word. Just say the word and we will be there and we will destroy everyone. How dare, how dare they? Do they not know who he is? The angels are confused that, that God's beautiful plan of salvation is being rolled out to us and to the angels. They are not all-knowing. And so they sit there and they're like, man, this is crazy that he created everything and now he's living among his own creation and then he's going to die for them? What God is this? And so Paul says, ladies, when you wear your head covering, it's a symbol of your authority that even angels are looking at going, wow, what humility. What humility to, to be willing to restrain yourself. Guys, for the gathering, what, like two, three hours? What strength. Because you could easily go, but no, hold on, I have all the freedom in Christ. Why, why? That's your problem, not mine. Close your eyes then. But what strength, what power to restrain, and then what love. What love. That you're willing to do this because, one, you love Christ, but you love your brothers and sisters as well. But let's land the plane. 
Paul says in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it not proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul is simply saying, what is common in culture? Christians, you live in a particular time and context. Be aware of it. Don't create these holy huddles where you go, yeah, but we can do whatever we want here because we're free in Christ. No, no, yes, you're free in Christ, then Christ sends you out. He sends you out to live in a particular time and context that we must be aware of. And in this context that we live in, there are a lot of things that are just kind of like, well, it doesn't go against Christ. It's not a bad thing. I, I have the freedom to not do it, but, but let me do it for the sake of those who don't know Christ yet because I don't want to be a distraction to them. So, so what is common in culture? We must ask this question. And so when he says here, does not nature itself teach you this? He's basically saying, well, well what, what's common here? And so back then, for men to wear or to have long hair communicated that maybe they were homosexual. And so he's just saying, okay, guys, then, then don't do that. At the public gathering, just don't do it. Now, that is not the case today. Things change. Things change, and so we always, always have to ask the question, okay, what is, what is happening in culture? Because we want to engage culture with the gospel. We don't want to be a distraction. There's a lot of things that they did back then that wouldn't make sense today. Jesus wore a tunic called a chitin underneath his long one-piece robe or cloak with something that they called a sash that would function as a belt in case maybe he wanted to tuck in his robe. Maybe he was running or fishing. Or <laughs> Man, that's how they rolled. And so if one Sunday, if maybe I rocked up here with a nice tunic and a robe, I mean, it'd be nice, but it'd still be a robe. I'm sure many of you would be like, okay, what? Like, what? What's happening here? The person that you invited to church would be looking at you and be like, hey, man, like, I know I didn't ask what kind of church this is, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not asking because I don't judge, but my friend just sent me a text and was like, hey, where are you? I'm like, I'm at church. He's like, what kind of church it is? So I'm, I'm going to ask you, hey, what kind of church is this? <laughs> like, what's, what's, but I don't judge, you know, but it becomes a distraction to the gospel. And I know this is a message that sometimes we, we, we give to women about modesty, but I think it's a message that us men, we need to hear. We need to hear it. Be careful about what you're wearing. Be sensitive. Be discerning. So that you're not a distraction. So that when after you finish your amen and people go, amen. They're not, it's a different kind of amen. <laughs> it's just a different kind of amen. You've become a distraction to the gospel and in doing so you're dishonoring your head. And ultimately, all of us, all, our, all of us, our head is Christ. Paul says just be aware. Be aware. Be mindful of your context. Yes, you are free in Christ, but you are also sent as a missionary into your context. So be mindful of it. Sadly, this is something that we understand when we go cross-border. When we go do mission trips elsewhere, we'll be like, no, I've got to be relevant. I've got to make sure that I'm sensitive to the culture. So what do they do? Okay, I'll do that. You'll restrain yourself. You'll practice humility in power because you love. When you don't do that here, it's because you fail to acknowledge that you are a missionary here as well where you live, work, and play, that you are a missionary, that you are sent out. So do the same thing. Be mindful. Don't dishonor Christ. Don't dishonor your head. And so I'll 
end where I ended last week, where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Practicing humility and understanding that as you practice humility, it requires incredible strength, incredible power to restrain some of your freedoms. Why? Because you love. Because you love. Follow me as I follow Christ. This is what Christ did for us. Humbled himself. Requiring incredible power to come and live among his own creation. Why? Because he loves us. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so Paul says, do likewise. Not only is Christ our example, but he is our source of strength and wisdom. He is all that we need to do this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come knowing that so much more could be said of this text. So much more could be unpacked. So much more could be taken apart. But help us to see what the golden thread is through it all. That golden thread being you. That you have called us to humble ourselves and to hold back and to restrain so that we might love others better. And the only way that we can do that is when we love you, when we anchor ourselves in you, when we find our strength in you. And so teach us, help us, guide us. Father, help us to live as family, to, to be a community that cares for one another and that loves one another. And I say this so much more in a transcultural community where the differences are clear and the personal preferences are evident. And the temptation to disregard others because I want to do it my way. Help us to love one another and to humble ourselves and to restrain where, it needs, where we need to be restrained. Father, we love you. Show us your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.